Well, we're in Matthew chapter number 2. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to it or use one supplied for you. Uh, that's page 807 if you're using one of the supplied Bibles. Matthew chapter 2, as Tim has already read for us, and we'll work our way uh, down through this passage of Scripture. But as you think about 2023, you're probably sitting here with, with either great anticipation for what this year has for you, or perhaps you're sitting here with great anxiety not knowing what this year will hold for you in your life. Will it be a good year? Will it be a bad year? Will my investments go up? Will they go down? Am I going to have good health? Will I make enough money? Will I achieve the goals that I have? Will the government do what I think it should do? Will the circumstances of my life be good or bad? What does 2023 have in store for me, for you? These are the questions that we ask. And we might say, well, I have a feeling it's going to be a good year. Or I have a feeling it's going to be a bad year. But we really have no way of knowing what this year holds. At the start of 2022, thousands of people in Ukraine never thought they would be without, without power, without heat in the winter because of an attack from Russia. They had no idea what 2022 had in store for them. We don't know our future. Now, tying in to what we've been looking at, a Christmas carol through the eyes of Matthew, uh, not Charles Dickens, but thinking about the story of the Christmas carol the last couple of weeks, we've looked at God's work in the past, in the present, and this week we'll look at God's work in the future. But in that story, the ghost of Christmas future comes and he shows Ebenezer Scrooge what is to be. And Scrooge wanted to know, if you remember that story, uh, ghost, I don't know what he called him, I don't remember what he called him, but can these things be changed? Is there something that can be done? And when he wakes up from that, from that encounter, from that dream, he purposed to change his behavior so he could alter the future. I wonder what Mary and Joseph pictured their future would be like once Jesus was born. As Tim mentioned, we think about the birth of Christ, but then the story moves on. And you wonder what was going through the mind of Mary and Joseph. We know from Luke that Mary pondered all of these things in her heart and molded them over. And certainly their faith in God had grown through this event. You see, you see Joseph's continued obedience throughout as his faith is growing. But I'm sure they have many questions. What is the future holding for us? What is this child really coming to do? Maybe they kept it to themselves. Maybe they discussed it with each other. But whatever they did, they had no need to fear because of God's work in the past, his work that he had done in the present in their lives, that they could trust now in a sovereign God who is in control of all things. And so it is for us. We, we have nothing to fear in 2023. I, I know that's easy to say, right? Easier said than done. But we have nothing to fear in 2023. There's nothing that this world can throw at us that should cause us to tremble because we know that God is in control of all things. Not just in this moment, here and now, but whatever would come in the future. He guides the events 
of the future. And he's doing this to bring about his perfect plan. A plan that we looked at that would come through Abraham, through David. A plan that would bring an earthly yet divine king. A king that gave his life, that rose again, that is now reigning on the throne of his father David. Jesus did what he came to do. And our future is secure if we are trusting in him. And so once again, let's travel back to the events that Matthew records for us. Jesus has been born. He is the rightful Messiah King as traced through his family line. He is the divine King from the Holy Spirit. And now chapter 2 points us forward to to Jesus being the eternal King. Following his birth, there are still lots of questions, but the work of God that he does after Jesus' birth makes clear that this was the promised king, not just for the present, but for the eternal future. Like God was going to do his work no matter what would come. And so the future work of God establishes the throne of the eternal king i got three points for us this morning, looking at what, his, what was his future work that he was doing here in chapter 2 and beyond, looking beyond. Point number 1, verses 1 through 11, we see the recognition of the king. We are, we are given a little bit of the context of our story in chapter 2, right at the beginning of verse number 1. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So Bethlehem was a region in Judea where Herod the Great, maybe you've heard that name from history, was the king. And all of this region was under the control of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus being the emperor. Okay, And then throughout throughout the Roman Empire, there were jurisdictions and regions of which there would be kings in those areas. Herod the Great was one of those kings in the area of Judea. And it's in this setting that wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. Now, these were well-learned men. Maybe they were priests uh, of their land. Uh, They were studiers of astrology. We know that they, as the text says, they come from the east. And they, but they knew the prophecies of the Jewish Messiah, which is, which is a little bit interesting. And we're not sure exactly where they came from, but from the east would be Babylon. And if you think back just prior to uh, the, the Jesus being born in the silent years of the, 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 the old, old Testament, you have Israel being carried off just before that into the Babylonian captivity. You've probably heard of that. So, so could it have been that men like Daniel, who was carried off into captivity, as well as other Jewish people, as well as some of the prophets, uh, as they exercise their faith, in the east, in the land of Babylon, that perhaps some of that teaching and that remnant of thinking about the Jewish Messiah was, was known and was learned? Where, where did these men from the east learn about this Jewish Messiah? And so you, you, we don't have time to get in there, but you can almost see maybe God even used the Babylonian captivity to bring about what we're reading right here in Matthew chapter 2. They were guided by a star. We don't know how long the journey took. We don't even know how many wise men there were. A lot of times we think three, but we don't know that. It just says that there were three gifts 
presented. But you can picture them coming into Jerusalem, into this region of King Herod, Herod the Great, and asking the question, where is the king of the Jews? How do you think that sounded in the ears of Herod? Now, the, the Jewish ears would have definitely perked up. They were, they've been waiting for the king. But the Roman ears would perk up as well. And that's what verse 3 tells us exactly what happened. It doesn't say they came to Herod, but news of this travels to Herod that these guys are here from the east and they're asking about a Jewish king. And when Herod hears this, he is troubled. Now, Herod the Great isn't, isn't really great. It's a self-proclaimed great. It would be like me saying, well, my name's not just Dennis, it's Dennis the Great. Well, you know that I'm not great, okay? But it's a self-proclaimed being great. Herod the Great was brutal. He was wicked. He was immoral. He was paranoid constantly about uh, his throne being overtaken. In fact, he, he killed one of his wives. Uh, he had many of his children killed because he was afraid of what they might do in trying to take the throne. Uh, it was actually said that it was said to have been claimed that Caesar Augustus made this statement about Herod. I would rather be Herod's hog than his son. So it makes sense then why Herod, when he hears the nudes of a potential Jewish king, was troubled. He was disturbed. He was agitated within his soul. Something, this wasn't settling right. And so the question that the wise man asked was a threat to Herod's kingship. Now every king wants to be honored. Most kings, I would probably say, unless they're godly kings, they, they want to be worshipped. It's all about them. But did you notice what verse 2 says in, this, in the statement that the wise men, they, they have come to worship, not Herod, but they have come to worship this Jewish king. And so Herod is troubled, and if Herod's not happy, nobody's happy. It's that kind of idea. All Jerusalem was troubled with him. He was, he was the kind of guy that would just fly off the handle, as we'll see later, and just make like irrational decisions. So you never knew what was coming. So Jerusalem is troubled by these things as well. And so what does he do? Uh, in verse number 7, he gathers his wise men uh, secretly. It's almost like, look, I don't want to make a scene here. Uh, but he wants to know where the baby is going to be born. And so the chief priests and the scribes, they get together, they start studying the Jewish scriptures, and they come to Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. And they, that's what we have recorded for us in verse number 6. Well, verses 5 and 6. It was written by the prophet, this is the prophet Micah, that in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, there will be a ruler and a shepherd who will come for my people Israel. Now, you might think that some of the Jews would start connecting the dots, and maybe some of them did. We just don't have it recorded for us. But it doesn't appear that they, that they do. Herod, uh, he, he, he calls, he summons 
sorry, I jumped ahead. He didn't, he, uh, in verse number four, he assembles the chief priests and the scribes. In verse number seven, now he assembles, he, he calls the wise men. He does that secretly. Look, hey, I hear you guys are traveling around, but you know, he wants to give, it's almost like he wants to give this perception that I'm not really worried about this, okay? But he calls them secretly, finds out when, when does the star appear? And then he tells them to go to Bethlehem, find this child, and then come back to me so that I can worship him. Now, does that sound like something that Herod would do? Just from a little bit we've been described. Nope. He's not looking to worship him, as we'll find out later. It's very strange that he says this, and maybe the wise men pick up on this, but continuing in our story here, verse number nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them um, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So they go on to Bethlehem. They they come, they find this star settling over. Verse number 10 tells us uh, they, they see the star and they rejoice with exceeding great joy. It settles over a particular house where Jesus was. And by this point, Jesus is probably somewhere between six months and a year and a half. We don't know exactly how old he was, but it wasn't the night he was born, okay? So the, the wise men, not there in the nativity scene, he's, at, he's six months to a year and a half years old. The shepherds are long gone. Mary and Joseph think, hey, we, we settled into our new home, into this new life. Joseph found his niche there in Bethlehem working as a carpenter. This is what our future holds. That's what they'd be thinking. The wise men go into the house. Verse 11, they see the child and Mary, and what do they do? They fall down and worship him. God is at work in these wise men. Who drew them to this house? By the guiding of a star, it was God himself. These men from the east were drawn by God and God revealed, them, revealed to them something that they were waiting for. They were waiting for the king. And they recognized Jesus for who he is. And then what do they do? This is all familiar stuff to us, but just getting our minds, picturing this, this scene unfolding, they bring to him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we don't have time to get into all these things, but these would have been valuable and expensive gifts uh, that, that would come from their land. Gifts, though, that would point to who Jesus was. If you think about gold, gold was a known gift given to a king. Frankincense, or we think of incense, would be a great gift given to a priest. Now, myrrh is a little bit of an interesting one. Myrrh would maybe not be normally given uh, just to anyone, but it was a a beautiful fragment. But do you know where myrrh was often used for? It was used for the embalming of bodies. So already, these wise men were pointing to the sacrificial death of Jesus that would one day come. Whether they knew it or not. As Tim was reading... Tim said, what do you say? Always looking for something new. I wasn't necessarily looking for something new. I was just letting my mind be refreshed. But he's reading that, and I thought, you know what? These gifts were given 
right before God tells them to depart. I wonder if they used some of that resources and sold some of those things for their trip into Egypt. I don't know. But God had provided for them. But these are the gifts that are given. We're not told how long they stay. They come and worship. But it seems like pretty quickly God brings them a warning through a dream. And they don't end up returning to Herod as Herod had requested. Now, we have lots of que- I have lots of questions about these wise men. Things that we don't know. But it's interesting that they are Gentiles. God was at work in the Gentile nations from the beginning of Jesus' life. It's Gentiles that come and recognize him as king. It's Gentiles that God reveals this truth to, to to come all the way into into Bethlehem, into Judea, into Jerusalem, to the the heart of, of Israel, and really proclaim to the Jewish people that the king has come. God works in the most unusual and unexpected ways, and he works behind the scenes to bring about worshipers to himself. These men recognized Jesus for the king that he was. Can can I ask us this morning, can I ask you this morning, who is your king? Who have you come to worship this morning? Before we quickly answer, well, well, of course, it's Jesus. Is that really who you've come to worship this morning? Or have, have we come for self? What do I get out of this? Or is it, let me come and praise Jesus as king? You see, we can quickly revert to our natural tendency to make self king. I'm in charge of my life. It's it's about me. And it's easy to read this story and to put ourselves in the camp of the wise men. And some some of those little, I don't know, signs or things that you see, you know, wise men still seek him. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm part of the wise men. But I wonder if maybe we're not more like Herod than we like to admit. Sure, we don't, have, we don't have the power that he had. Maybe we, we might think, like, I, I would never do anything like he's about to do. But we get threatened at the thought of another person being above us. Another person giving us commands and telling us what to do. This is my life. This is my kingdom. I'm not going to submit to anyone. And we play along like Herod and we might pretend like we desire to worship. But in our soul we are troubled because at the end of the day, we desire to be worshipped. We desire that life would center around us. And so here on this first day of a new year, it's, it's a great time to ask yourself, because nobody else, nobody else knows your heart this morning except for you and God. Do you recognize Jesus as your king? Is your life about worshiping him? Are you willing to give up all the treasures you possess to fall down and worship him? And maybe, 
I hope. Maybe you answer yes. Yes, he is my king. Truly. Like I, I'm, I'm submitting to him. I want to follow after him. And if that's the case, praise be to God. But remember, the wise men weren't wise enough in their own wisdom to recognize Jesus as king. They recognized him because of God's work in their lives. Because God brought them to that place. And so Christian, if you say, yes, Jesus is my king, it's not your wisdom that has caused you to recognize this. It's not your, 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 your moral superiority or whatever you want to put on there. God has caused you by his grace to recognize Jesus as king. It is God who has brought you to salvation. And so we boast not in ourselves, but in our God who is at work bringing worshipers to him. We need to move on here. Point number one, the recognition of a king. Point number two, though, the rescue of a king. Verses 12 to 18 We want to look at the rescue of the king. I don't even know how many reality shows are out there anymore, but I thought a good one for for this situation could be like king versus king. which king Which king is going to win? Only one king will remain. Because it wasn't long after Jesus' birth that he was a perceived threat to other kings, as we've already talked about. Verse number 16 tells us now that when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, so they, verse 12, they don't return to Herod, they go back to their country some other way. Verse 16, when he sees that he's been tricked by the wise men, he becomes furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men or the time that he had figured out in their journeying. Herod's not used to being disobeyed, but here he's disobeyed. And now he flies into a rage, orders all the male children in Bethlehem and the Bethlehem region to be killed. Now Bethlehem's only five miles from Jerusalem, so it's not going to take long for the soldiers or whoever was carrying out this order to go and to, and to make this happen. It's not going to take that long. Bethlehem's population isn't very large. We're, we're, we're probably talking about two dozen uh, male boys, two years old and under, that were killed in this order. This doesn't minimize the horrific nature of the event. But Herod had one thing in mind. Kill any potential threat to the kingship. His actions, we're told in verse number 18, 17 and 18, would fulfill a prophecy, the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 15. And I I do want to return to this, but not right now. Sadly, on that day, there were several children left dead in Bethlehem. But do you know who was not among them? Jesus. Jesus was rescued by the sovereign work of God. Verse 13 tells us 
that when the wise men had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Herod's looking to kill Jesus. He's about to flex his muscle and let everyone in the region know who is king. However, God is one step ahead of him. And he tells Mary and Joseph to take Jesus and to flee to Egypt. And so we see a sovereign God at work in rescuing his son, the true king. Now in this story, we read the name Herod. But make, make no mistake here, this is the work of Satan. Every effort is exhausted by Satan to kill the king before it's too late. Now, when we think about that, we also think, look, Satan is powerful. He, 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 he can tempt people. He can use and manipulate, and he's, he's the prince of the power of the air. He, the Bible describes him as the god of this world, but he is limited in his power. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Think about God guided the wise men to Jesus, but it doesn't appear that Satan knows the exact location. So, so however you want to think about that, was this a star that only they could see? That, the, that, they, that only was appearing to them in a certain supernatural, special way? Because it doesn't appear that anybody else knew where this location was. Satan doesn't know. But now he has some clues. And this is as good a chance as any to kill the king. But he fails. During Jesus' earthly ministry... Satan would seek to kill Jesus numerous times until finally he does on the hill of Calvary. He's dead. The, the king is dead. Satan did it. So much for shepherding God's people. So much for being the ruler that God had promised. Except we know that that wasn't the end. And what only the mind of God could plan it was through Jesus' death that Satan was destroyed. And so really, the very thing that Satan wanted, death to the king, was the thing that drove the nail into his coffin. God the Father protected Jesus as a young child, preserved his life in this situation so that at the right time, Christ could die for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. Jesus would come and he would die, but not in this way. Satan cannot stop the work of God. God is sovereignly in control. Satan is defeated. And so, Christian, why do we fear the future? This work of God ensured that Jesus would live until it was time for him to die. Consider with me John chapter 10 and verses 17 and 18. Jesus' own words here. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down 
and I have authority to take it up again. No one would take the life of Jesus, but Jesus would willingly lay his life down. And he does this as, the, as he, in his own words, says that he might take it up again. In other words, that he might rise from the dead. And so it's in his resurrection that we have hope. His resurrection is our resurrection. Without the resurrection, we, we have no hope. 1 Corinthians 15. And think about, as Matthew is writing this, he knows the end of Jesus' life and ministry as he writes this biography. Like, so he knows the end of the story as he's writing this and recording this for us. And so that's why I think it's no accident that he references verse number 18, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. Look, we don't have the time to turn back to Jeremiah 31, 15. You can jot that down. But it's a prophecy about weeping as it refers to Rachel. Rachel was the the wife of Jacob, going back many years in the history of the people of Israel. Genesis 35, 19 tells us that Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. So here, a matriarch of the Jewish faith is said to be left weeping from the grave, so to speak, for the children of Israel who have been taken and killed in judgment. That's what Jeremiah was writing about. Now, Matthew connects the dots here, and he says, Rachel is weeping from the grave, so to speak, for the children who are killed under the order of King Herod. But, in the verses following Jeremiah 31.15, God gives a promise to his people that they will come back to the, from the land of the enemy and that there is a hope for the future. And I think that's why Matthew here pulls in this prophecy of lament but knows that there is a future for the people of God because the Messiah who has come has been rescued from destruction and will bring his people back to the land that he has promised. Friend, this morning, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you're trusting in his death and resurrection, you have no need to fear today. Just as Jesus was rescued from the hand of Herod, you will be rescued from sin and hell. You will be rescued from the judgment that God has decreed because of our sin. His promise to save you from eternal death is as sure as the resurrection of, or sorry, the rescue of Jesus from the hand of Herod. And so Jesus' life was preserved as a young child to ensure that his work on the cross would be accomplished. To ensure that he would rise from the dead and to ensure that he would be the king who now sits on David's eternal throne. Jesus' rescue happened so that our rescue can happen. Thanks be to God. But God's work doesn't end there. And we need to continue and and finish the end of this story here in chapter 2. Because Jesus and Mary and Joseph are now in Egypt, which is no place for a Jewish king. So we've looked at the recognition of the king and the rescue of the king. Number three now, the return of the king. And truthfully, I can't help saying, I can't say that without thinking of uh, John R.R. R. Tolkien's Return of the King in Lord of the Rings, book number three. But this is a different return of the king. 
And I want to focus on two aspects of his return that Matthew highlights for us. First of all is the return from Egypt. We have verses 14 and 15 uh, and verses 19 and 20. In verses 14 and 15, we see that God's work to lead Joseph and his family into Egypt. Okay, I want you to leave, leave Israel. I want you to go to Egypt is only setting the stage for a future fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus would come back from Egypt. Notice at the end of verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. So you jump down to verse 19. When Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. I think Joseph, maybe he's getting used to angels appearing to him by this point. And he says, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who have sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph obeys. He goes back to the land in verse number 21. He goes into the land of Egypt. Excuse me, probably thinking that he's going to return to Bethlehem. But I want us to notice uh, or focus a little bit on the end of verse 15 once again that this action was to fulfill what Hosea the prophet said. In Hosea chapter 11 and verse number 1, here's what it reads. Here's the prophecy that it's alluding to. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now we read these words of Hosea 11. If you could leave that up there for just a second. Who is the child in view as Hosea writes these words? It's Israel. It's the people of Israel. God often described himself as a father to his people. Israel as a nation was his chosen son. And what Hosea is describing goes all the way back to the Exodus. The people of Israel were not yet a nation, but they were recognized as a people group in Egypt. They were slaves to Pharaoh until God sends Moses and the ten plagues, and you know that whole story, and he brings them out of Egypt. Okay? We're connecting the dots. And that event with Moses and the plagues and the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea and coming out of Egypt wasn't an isolated event from the plan of God. It was actually pointing forward to what we're reading now in Matthew, Jesus, the Son of God, has now been brought out of Egypt. And if we're connecting the dots, not just here, but we'll look at some verses in Galatians in just a moment, Jesus is the true and faithful Israel of God. You see, God's plan in Christ now is getting a little more clear. A little clearer in what Matthew is is unfolding for us in this prophecy. Fast forward to Galatians chapter 3 and verses 26 and 29. And notice what Paul writes as he further helps us connect the dots. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. 
And then just a few chapters later in Galatians, and we don't have time to go there, he references the Israel of God. Okay, so, so track with me here. Jesus, Matthew makes the connection, Jesus is the true Israel of God. And then from what we understand about what Paul, as he connects those dots, all those who are in Christ are the spiritual Israel of God. And so Matthew points us to God's future work of gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself through Jesus Christ to live and to worship him, live with and worship him forever. So that's the significance of the prophecy fulfilled at the end of verse number 15 as the king returns from Egypt the second aspect I want to think about in the return of the king is a, there is not just a return from Egypt, but there's a return to Nazareth. Verses 22 and 23 conclude our story that we'll look at this morning for us. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he's warned in a dream again, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Joseph's plan, go back to Judea. Again, probably let's just go back to where we were in Bethlehem. We had a good thing going before we had to flee to Egypt. But along the way, his social media feed is lighting up and he hears that Archelaus is now reigning. And... He gets afraid. And he gets afraid because if you thought Herod was bad, Archelaus was worse. He learned some things in a negative way from his dad. In fact, Caesar Augustus only allowed him to reign for 10 years until he was stripped of his power because that's how bad of a ruler he was. And so being warned in a dream, God meets Joseph in his fear, and says, go withdraw to the district of Galilee, and he settles in the city of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth doesn't have the greatest reputation. Maybe you already things come to your mind as you're thinking about that. Maybe, maybe that's even why Joseph settles there. Like, let's go to this kind of outcast city that doesn't have a good reputation, and quietly, maybe we can just slip in and, and hide away. If you remember what Philip, or when Nathaniel comes to his brother Philip and says, We found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember their reply, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But this is the unflattering title that sticks with Jesus. All, Matthew actually uses it several times Jesus of Nazareth. But what makes things a little bit complicated is there's no direct prophecy saying that the Messiah would come from Nazareth or that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. There's nothing Old Testament-wise like, that you can look at and say, oh, he, the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, oh, and he's coming from Nazareth. So, so what is Matthew doing here? But you'll notice the, word, the language that Matthew uses, what was, what was spoken by the prophets. He uses a little bit more general language, not by the prophets, but by the prophets, which maybe seems to indicate that he's thinking about the prophetic writings about the Messiah as a whole. 
particularly that he would be despised and he would be scorned, which would make a lot of sense because the first thing that people would think when they thought Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Matthew walked with Jesus for three years and he heard all the insults and the jokes about Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm sure he considered what the prophets spoke of as the Messiah who would come humble and lowly. And there's a, you can read more about that. There's a couple other options that people will, will put out there as far as how this prophecy was fulfilled. But, but that fits best for me, uh, how to read that prophecy. So as we look at this event from the perspective of Mary and Joseph, we see that God was arranging things for a future work. The the birth of Christ wasn't the end. He's doing more. And Jesus is driven from the land by Herod, but he would return. And the the prophetic puzzle pieces were being placed together. So now we we read as we, we see here what looked like sort of a a scattered mess of prophecies. I mean, how can all of these things be fulfilled? From Abraham, he's from David, he's Emmanuel, he's born in Bethlehem, he comes from Egypt, he's known as a Nazarene. Yet here it is all laid out for us. God was at work to establish and secure an eternal king for his people. And he had accomplished this. And so God's work in the past and the present and the future is Jesus. He's the center of it all. In Christ, God will bring to pass every last promise he has made because in Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled. 2 Thessalonians 1.20 and tw- through 22 says this, for all the promises of God Find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Okay, so our connection to God is through the God-man Jesus. The only way to worship and praise God is through Jesus Christ. He is the conduit through which all of God's blessings flow to us. And so this is why we make such a big deal about the gospel. Because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God's plan is all about him. It's in him that our hope rests. It's in him that all of our fears are driven away. All of our burdens are lifted. All of our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. All of our longings are satisfied. And so may God graciously work in us that the gospel would ring loudly and freshly in our hearts, in our ears this year. Because if he is our focus, then it won't matter what's going on in the world around us. There's nothing to hope for in this world anyway. 
If you haven't figured it out by now, our world is moving against the plan of God. Christians have no friends in this world. There are no deals to be made with Herod, so to speak. We have one king, and in the battle of kings, he wins every time. 